in, in order to explain that, I've got to go back a little bit to Gordon Lightfoot for Chris. <laughs> You've heard this really great song called Sunshine. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by where we are currently located. We are back, guys. I know. We're back in the godly studio. Shout out to Sophie. How long? How That's a, a BU School of Public Health very specific joke. Yes. Everybody will get it, though. Right, absolutely. So how long has it been since we have been here in the studio? 42 months. 42 feels like 42 years at this point, but something like 18 months, 19 months. It could months? be, could I don't be about know. that. Yeah, yeah. I think so. We are back. We are back here in the, the Godly studio for the first time. And I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health at the Boston University School of Public Health. And I am joined in the studio by Dr. Chris Gill from the Department of Global Health. Welcome, Chris. It's so nice to be back. It's good to see you in person, Matt, I must say, as opposed to even virtually, like when you went away to England and Mm -hmm. left us sad Mm -hmm. for so long. Mm -hmm. But now we can see you in person. It's so much better. It's so nice. I I appreciate that you spent uh, six months while I was on sabbatical crying. Yes, into my teacup every morning. Appreciate that. We are also here with Dr. Don Thea from the Department of Global Health. Welcome back, Don. Hey, Matt. Hey, Chris. It's good to see see you in three dimensions Mm -hmm. instead of two. And as a reminder, head on over to the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. That's BU's hub for lifelong learning. You'll find all kinds of fun stuff there, and you never know, maybe something... Something that will pique your interest. Also a reminder, head on over to iTunes or Stitcher or whatever the kids are using these days for their podcasts and give us a rating because that helps other people find us and mostly it just makes us feel good and we really want that. So now on to the show. So today in our first segment, which is our journal club segment, we are going to look at a study on the effect of cannabis use on car crashes. Then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we will talk about lay epidemiology and vaccine acceptance. And I have to admit that lay epidemiology is not what I thought it was. So I'm I'm excited to talk about that one. Is, even. That, is that different than armchair epidemiology? It is it is very different, it turns out, mm. but it is I would say there is a there is a similarity to it, but it was not what I thought it was. Okay. And then in our third segment, which is our amazing and amusing, we'll get into some things that just made us laugh out loud or Weevil jokes, for Chris example. We'll make weevil jokes. Let's let's just skip right over that with no explanation whatsoever and jump into segment one. So we're going to talk about an article that looked at the effect of cannabis use on car crashes. It was published in the American Journal of Epidemiology. Full disclosure, I am on the editorial board. And does that study- create a conflict of interest? I don't know. You tell me. I don't think it does. Uh, I'm going to say no since it's not. It's already published. Good you point. weren't one of the reviewers for this, were you? I was not one of the reviewers for but this. But that would be a conflict of interest. We never do that. Or have we ever like discussed a paper that we have been reviewers for? No. I don't not, think we no, have. No, no, not no, that I know. Not. That would seem to be transgressing something. Yeah. That's not good. Yeah, I don't. Uh, that's actually an interesting question because why would it be? Tra- once it's published, why would it be problematic for us to discuss it? It's then in the... In the public record, we can discuss it at that point. I guess you're right. But I suppose I would feel awkward about it if the journal didn't have an open peer review system that somehow I was like spilling spilling some secret beans. Oh, I see. But you could talk about it and not say that you were a reviewer if it was closed peer review. True. Mm. But it would be very hard for me to come up with anything other to say than what I'd said. So True. It would True. seem like a, you know, a distinction without a difference. Well... 
fair enough. Anyway, this one was published in the American Journal of Epidemiology, and it was entitled Estimating Cannabis Involvement in Fatal Crashes in Washington State Before and After Recreational Cannabis Legalization Using Multiple Imputation of Missing Values, thereby taking the prize for longest title in any episode that we have talked about so far. It was by first author... Okay, do I have this right? Because now I'm thinking I might have it wrong. It's first author Brian Brian Teft from the AAA Foundation for yeah. Traffic Safety in Washington D.C. Okay, no, I do I, th- I do think I have that right. I just word I copied around wrong. But AAA, which is the what American, American Automobile, Automobile Association. Association, and uh-huh. I asked this only because in when I lived in South Africa, it was just AA. It was just the Automobile Association, which here in the United States is Alcoholics Anonymous. So it's, uh-huh. it got confusing. So. There were no headlines for this one, so we'll just jump right into it. So, Chris, it hasn't been published yet. It's, it's in exactly. It's an advanced one. So, so fair enough. So, Chris, you want to you want to talk us through this? Yeah. So the the question being addressed is whether the legalization of, of of marijuana, which has occurred in many states now, but originally was in Colorado and Washington State, and then one other, but those Massachusetts. That came, that came soon. Oh, you're talking about the original ones. Was, the original was just as far as Colorado I know. Colorado and Washington State. Yeah, I think California came later, so I think it was just those two. So there's the most data for this, and you know, the, obviously, you know, cannabis is intoxicating because of the the THC molecule, which is the active drug, and so there's a reasonable expectation that this is this is going to create another sort of force that leads to car crashes in general and specifically fatal car crashes, which is what this article looked at. And even though that's sort of like obvious, it's kind of like saying, you know, what happens when you, you know, do an experiment where we're going to give, you know, 5,000 drivers in a randomized trial, we're going to give them half of them two liters of vodka before they drive in traffic versus not. And then you'd find that Presumably, those drivers do less well. So th- this this seems to me like like one of those analyses where where the yeah I'm just saying the the answer is, is is kind of is kind of obvious right because it's an intoxicating substance. But but sort of showing this and sort of trying to quantify the effect of this I think is really main the, mainly the port here, not whether you know mar- marijuana has an adverse effect on driving, which almost certainly it does. But like you know, can we demonstrate this in the data and can we kind of, you know, make some estimates about quantifying it? Now, in, in this group's previous analyses, they'd actually done, a, you know, a, a deeper dive on trying to see, do car crashes go up? And th- in, in this paper, actually, they're, they're not focusing on that question specifically because they sort of answered it. Rather, they're, they're asking, can we demonstrate that there is an increase in the proportion of fatal car crashes where THC is detected Question one, and amongst those where it is detected, is the concentration of THC higher? And in both cases, the the comparator group that they're or the comparator that they're looking at is fatal car crashes that were in the pre-legalization period in Washington State. So it's it's kind of a you know it's not kind of it's a pre-post analysis where you're looking at these two periods and seeing what is the proportion of drivers who have a blood or urine test that that tests positive for THC in the pre or the post era and amongst those who are positive are the average concentrations increased so that was the the, the primary two questions and then there was a, a sort of a, an interesting so linked secondary question i thought which was what about other intoxicants like do people who smoke marijuana tend to also drink uh, alcohol at the time or take other drugs at the same time and so is there kind of like a, a general increase in the use of, of intoxicating substances that one could point to the legalization of marijuana as having sort of a spillover effect on. 
So that's the, the basic question they're addressing. And then the way they did it is, is to take advantage of, that, of the fact that in Washington state, they have this very elegant database that basically captures all fatal and non-fatal car crashes. And I should, I should state that here that when we're talking about a fatal car crash, we're not necessarily talking about the driver of the car, uh, of the, you know, the, the person who was driving the car and was tested as being the one who died. It could have been someone in the other car or another passenger in the car. So these are car crashes where a fatality occurred, but not necessarily the driver of the car in question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so they, they had this uh, database that extended you know back into the 90s. And so they had an extensive pre and post period. And the time of legalization was, what, 2002-ish? Am I getting that right? Yeah. So for many of these car crashes... 2012. 2012, I'm saying. For many of these car crashes, a blood or urine test had been taken from the driver of the car, but not all. So this kind of gets to the second part of the very long-winded title of this paper, which is about multiple imputation, because they use this technique to try to fill in some data for the roughly 50% of, of times where a blood or urine test for THC was not done. Then they characterize the THC not just as present or absent, but also by concentration. So though this is not explicitly stated in the paper, it appears when they say that you know detection was defined as one nanogram per mil or above, I, I, I infer that it was probably the case that one nanogram was their level of detection because they right. categorize their, their exposures as zero or greater than one. And then you would logically say, well, what be, what about between zero and one? That That is not addressed anywhere. And I think it's because one is their lower limited Presumably. detection of the assay. Yep. So, you know, zero doesn't necessarily mean zero. It means undetectable with the technology, but not necessarily zero. Um, but they also then looked at, at, you know, one to five nanograms, five to 10, and then greater than 10, sort of looking at a little bit high, rather high and extremely high at the time of, of intoxication. But there's also an element of specificity here that's worth noting, which is that THC concentrations fall quickly after one has smoked marijuana. And so anyone who's above 10 probably is either because they smoked a lot of it or because they smoked it very recently mm-hmm. and are probably more intoxicated for either of those reasons. So 10 is, is likely a more specific marker of recent use of marijuana than the lower levels. So basically, that's that's the gist of the analysis. You have the predictor, which is like you know, traffic fatalities where the in, in the driver did or did not have exposure to marijuana, and the proportion of those that occurred in the pre and the post period. And so what they what they did for the missing data was to use multiple imputation, and and this is where I I kind of got a little bit stuck, and I'm hoping that the two of you can can flesh out this debate more after, which is the the assumption behind making an imputation. So for those who, who don't know, imputing, imputing data is basically making up data in a, in, in a logical inform, way. Informed in an, by a sensible the, way, the right? information that we know about you. So we take a, right. a, a good, a good, an educated guess at what those variables would have been. So it is an educated way of making stuff up, but it is still making stuff up, right? Agreed. We have half of the you know, these, these fatalities where they didn't do a test. And one's got to kind of assume that, that there's a reason why people test and, and why they don't. And the reason why they test is that there's a high suspicion by the police who attend the accident that someone who was intoxicated, and so they're going to want to test. And when they don't test, it's probably because they had they had were less suspicious of that. And so there, there's bound to be some bias in here. So I think this is this is one of the weak spots in their in their analysis. The the other thing I'll, I I will say is that 
in many of the cases where I've seen imputation used in other studies, it's sort of like to try to fill in a gap, say, between you know a missing data point in a time series analysis. So, for example, let's say we have multiple blood draws on a patient who's undergoing antiretroviral therapy, and there's 10 blood draws, but number five is missing, and in and all the ones where they were tested, their HIV viral load was undetectable. And so it is reasonable to impute that it was probably undetectable for the one that was missing because the, the, the bracketing values were also negative. So that would be a typical way of doing imputation based on what you knew in a series. But here we don't know anything because it's a, it's a single point in time. So that made me wonder, are the, are the kinds of assumptions behind the imputation as solid in, in this sort of cross-sectional analysis as they are in, a, say, a longitudinal analysis where you have more information about the, the, the subjects? I hope you will, you will attack that issue when we go into the discussion. Bottom line, though, on their, on their results was that the proportion of fatal accidents associated with the use of THC by the driver who may or may not themselves have been the one who died went up substantially from the pre-legalization period to the post-legalization. It more than doubled, in fact. Mm -hmm. And that there were also some other sort of quirky findings here, which is that the prevalence of alcohol or or other drugs that were detected in these 50% who underwent tested also trended up, not quite as sharply, but they they all seem to go up, indicating that people were not just smoking marijuana, but they were smoking and drinking or smoking and taking other illicit drugs. And I'm going to, I think I'm going to stop there because I think that was the, those were the main findings of this this analysis. Yeah. So I would just add, so you said, you know, the, the, proportion in which the driver tested positive for THC doubled from about 9.3% before legalization to about 19.1% after. Okay. That's right. So Don, I'm going to ask you for your take on the study. While I do, Chris, though, I want you to, to, to confirm something while Don is talking, because you said something that would change my interpretation, which is that you said in the beginning that they were looking in this study at whether the essentially the distribution of marijuana use or or marijuana detection in fatal crashes had changed before and after because, this is what I thought I heard you say, because they had already done work to show that the number of cases had changed. Yes. I didn't get that part. So I just want, can you confirm that? Well, I... (laughs) So sort of yes, maybe no. They say in their in their introduction, they give a reference to a an analysis that they had done where they talk about the absolute increase or decrease of car fatalities. And then in the discussion, they, they cite a whole series of other studies that showed that the introduction of or the legalization of marijuana in, in multiple states had led to some increase in the total number of car okay. crashes. All right. um, so they I think they were basically saying that that question has sort of been answered. And now we're looking at, at sort of more of the mechanism? Can we kind of get into more of a causal model where, you know, you have this observation, legalization leads to an increased number of of fatalities, but now we're trying to say, can we explain any of this by an increased, you know, proving that there's Mm -hmm. an actual increase in in people being intoxicated due to THC exposure in the pre and post period? Okay. Don, what was your take on this? Matt, I'm going to throw it back to you because oh. because this paper so heavily relies on this concept of multiple imputation of missing values. It's even in the title, which is a relatively unusual way to present the findings. And that 50%, essentially 50% of the individuals did not have a measurement. And I think Chris's analogy is a good one. And I think that the, the, the listeners would like to hear 
how this kind of imputation is different than the kind of imputation that, that Chris talked about, wherein this imputation, from my understanding, is taking a number of the other characteristics known about a particular driver, like the sex and the gender and the license type, and using those values to infer an association with likely THC status mm -hmm. in an individual in whom that is not measured. Seems to me like that is a real stretch. Mm. And as a non-epidemiologist <laughs> and as a non-quantitative person, I find it as a as I'm sure a lot of the listeners would find it, really hard to understand how you can accurately make those estimates based on data which I don't think necessarily has a high correlation with THC status. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, uh, there's a there's a statistical term which is MSU, making stuff up. Stuff up. Except usually the S is a different word <laughs> that rhymes with hit. Right. And right. has an S at the beginning anyway, of that. Educate us, Matt. <laughs> All right. Okay. So let me just start by saying I I do share some of your skepticism. Not clear. Not nearly as much as you do, but the idea behind imputation is essentially we have a couple of different choices that we can make when we have missing information. One is we could just say there's so much missing information, we can't answer this question, we could just give up with this data set. Number two, we could ignore it. We could just say, let's just throw out all of the data where it's missing and we'll only look at the cases where we have all the information. The both, first one, both of which would introduce a lot of bias. Well, the, the first one doesn't because you just give no answer because yeah. you just don't analyze the right. data. But then you learn nothing. The second one is is problematic because we know that, as, as you say, those who don't have a, a blood test presumably are different from those who do. So the, the option that they choose to use here, and I will say that multiple imputation is more often used, at least in my experience, not in the situations you described, Chris, which I think is, you know, it's useful, but I would, I think of that more as a, you know, a, a, a just sort of trying to fill in the information in the middle in the time trend, whereas, you know, in, in these kinds of studies, it's more often used for, you know, you have some missing covariates, you have some missing confounders, and you want to impute that. You've got most of the data, say, you know, like you got 80% of the data, but you don't want to have to throw out all that other information because you don't have it, so you impute it. And that, that's one case. But this is the predictor value. Here, yeah, this is the endpoint. <laughs> here, here, right? I think it's the predictor It's the exposure in yeah. this case. Yeah. Okay. Right? But, uh, because the, the they, they, they don't have the exposure in cases where the blood sample was never taken. They don't know right. who had you know the THC levels. But the, the primary endpoint of the study is the proportion who had THC. So they're imputing the result. I, I usually see an imputation of like a predictor of a result, you know, like a covariate, like you're saying, but not imputing the actual result itself seems like so, old. So I, I don't I don't see it quite the way you see it. I still think the car, the the fatal accident is the outcome. It depends on what you mean by outcome here. But we're not but predicting predicting that, we, are we? We are. I mean, we're trying. The, the goal, I think, here is to determine whether or not THC is causing car accidents. That's what you no no fatal car the, accidents. Because the, the the purpose of this study, as opposed to the one that they referred to but don't actually report here, is what is the proportion of THC present in the pre and the post era? So that is the outcome. Is is THC yes or no? And here they have I, imputated that result. I, I get that, but that's uh, that is imputed, not to sorry. me imputated. It's fine. Imputated. Imp to me, that's not so an interesting. Imputed. If that's really what they're interested in, and this is where I was planning to go with it before we brought up the imputation, it, to me, that's not a particularly interesting question, because the 
the distribution of fatal accidents, whether the proportion of fatal accidents in which THC is present is changing, doesn't give me a whole lot of useful information. In the same way, Chris, as you, you know, you, we've, we've talked about a number of times, right now with COVID, knowing if there's an outbreak, knowing that a whole bunch of those people in the outbreak were vaccinated doesn't tell me anything because the you know eventually if everyone got vaccinated all of the cases would be vaccinated in right. this case right. if thc use is going up there's going to be more cases of fatalities in which thc is present but just if because overall, more people are doing it right if the right. overall number of 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 fatal accidents was going down even as the proportion of fatal accidents that included thc was going up you would think Overall, that's a net good. Right. right. Unless people are driving Teslas and they have automatic driving. And it doesn't matter if you're high because you're not driving the car. That is a Elon good point. Elon Musk is driving it. That is a good point. But my point being, let's say, like, suppose, for example, that you introduce, you, you legalize THC, you legalize marijuana, THC is, you know, going to be found in people's blood. And every single person who was going to consume alcohol and then go drive a car is now going to, going to use marijuana and then may or may not drive a car because of that. They may be concerned. So all of the accidents now, you find THC, but the overall number of accidents is going down. I mean, right. that's right. a ridiculous scenario. I'm not trying to say that's what's happening. I'm just saying, to me, knowing the proportion of the fatal accidents is changing doesn't to me, it doesn't it's only really part answer. of the question. Yeah. So right? that's why I was asking you to confirm right. that but, the cases Which is why this is up. such a funny, a funny analysis in a way, because they don't answer the obvious question, which is, does THC increase your risk of dying in a car crash? I agree. They just say, what is exactly as you say, that, that the, the proportion has gone up, but that's all we know. Yeah. We assume that it's, it's bad. Yeah. It's so probably getting, bad. So getting back to the digression. <laughs> Are we talking about get, Gordon get, Lightfoot let, let's, again? Let's get off this? the main point. Let's get back to the digression. <laughs> Matt, you're going to tell us how gen, sex or license type is mm -hmm. a, an adequate means for imputing THC mm -hmm. in a particular individual. In, in order to explain that, I've got to go back a little bit to Gordon Lightfoot for Chris. <laughs> you wrote this really great song called S Sunshine, before I think. We, before we started recording, Chris went on this tangent about Gordon Lightfoot that had Don and I baffled. Okay, so you, what you want to know, Don, is what exactly? <laughs> what do you want to know? I want to know exactly how multiple imputation okay, yeah, works. Yeah, so so then what we do is we say, okay, we we have information on, in this case, about half the people. And using that information, we can sort of figure out what predicts having THC in your blood. From the knowns. From the knowns. Then we say, okay, we we don't know the THC level of these other people, but we do know what predicts having THC in your blood based on the knowns, which is part of the problem. And so we use that to take a guess. Now, it's not a, we don't guess in the sense of, we don't say, you know, it's a, there's a 90% chance that you would have, you know, THC in your blood based on this, this, and this, and therefore we're going to assign it to you. We say, okay, there's a 90% probability. So we'll, we'll essentially like flip a coin with a 90% 90 probability. We do this a bunch of times and we combine all that information. It only solves the problem to the extent that the unknowns are like the knowns. That's right. After you account for those other things that we have information on. So let me see if I can, I can summarize essentially what you're saying. So of the knowns where we have all of the data, say half of the, half of the individuals in this data set, we know their sex, their license type, and, and their age, and whatever else. 
and we, we try to categorize them into groups of those individuals who have THC and those individuals who don't have THC. And we look at those other characteristics, and those other characteristics have a particular pattern mm-hmm. associated with the presence of THC in their samples. And that pattern presumably would be different than the pattern for those other variables that you would see in those individuals that don't have THC in there. Mm -hmm. there. And then you build 50 data sets. Usually fewer, but yep. 50 data sets for what purpose? How do you take those 50 data sets and then translate that into a known likely probability of THC for somebody who is his female sex and has a suspended license and, you know, is a smoker or, you know, all the rest of that stuff? Yeah, so in in the... Data set in the the people where I have all the information, I fit a model to predict having THC based on smoking, based or on all those things. That's going to give me for every you know pattern type, you know, a this type of license, female, you know, whatever, a probability. And then using that probability, I can then you know essentially guess for each person based on that probability. But I do it a bunch of times. So let's say there's a ninety percent probability that someone with your characteristics had THC in their blood, I would, you know, do this 10 times or 10 times, maybe nine of them you in your data set, you'd, you'd have THC in one case you wouldn't. Mm. So it's that sort of type approach. So it's, it, we're not saying we know exactly we're, we're guessing, but I, mm-hmm. it, it, it is not perfect in that it, it really does make an assumption that all of the information that we have on these people who we do have the full information is good enough to predict what happens in those who don't. And so if those who do are very different from those who don't have that measurement, we're going to get things wrong. But the question is not do we get it right or wrong, do we get closer to the truth with the imputation than we would have if we had just thrown out everybody? So, so, so the problem really is in comparing the group that have all the variables with the group that have none of the variables, because we're not going to find many nuns in the group where we have all the variables and when they have say, THC. When you say nuns, you know, or 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 people who I'm are. I'm thinking about the flying nun. Specifically, and sound of music. Are we who, are different kind of nuns who are specifically against smoking or doing drugs or something nuns. like that. So, so those two groups could potentially be different, right? I have to know. I have to know the other information about both groups to be able to impute. Okay. So if. If the the THC level is missing, but I know all that other stuff, you know, license type, gender, about both people, then I can use that other information. If I if I'm missing all of the information, I can't use so that, can that data at all. So we so here is where their table one, you know, makes this whole thing sound a little dodgy to me because they provide a comparison of the THC of you know different demographic characters amongst the, the THC positives and the TH negatives mm-hmm. and also the THC status unknowns. And and you know, not surprisingly, the presence of THC is associated with all sorts of things that, that would not like shock you. Like younger age, male sex, not having a driver's license, having had their driver's license recently suspended being alcohol intoxicated or having other drugs on board, history of traffic violations, someone else's car, single vehicle crash is a really interesting one because it means that basically they they've drove off the road. Mm-hmm. So they didn't hit somebody, but they or just like something. lost yep. control. Yep. 
events at night, and of course, post-legalization. But but one of the things that is so strikingly different between these two groups, if I could compare the, the proportion of drivers who died for THC known and positive was 75%. But amongst the THC unknowns, it was only 17%. Mm-hmm. In fact, if you look down this column, the THC unknowns look really different from the THC known and positive and negatives. In fact, the difference between the positive and negatives is, you know, there, there is a difference. It's systematic. But it, it is a, a relatively small difference compared with the THC num- numbers, where the, the THC unknown status individuals, where these the, 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 the basic demographics are like night and day. Yeah. But that's, so, so the things that I've measured that are different, those aren't the problem. Because if, if I've measured it, I can do something about it. It's, does the, do those distributions comparing the known and unknown people who we know the THC status and those we don't lead you to conclude that there are probably other things that we can account for. Sure. And I think the answer there is reasonably yes. Yeah, sure. No, I, I take your argument that, that, and I think you said it so well, that we're, we're seeing, does the imputation enhance the, the, the analysis? Are we learning something more than we would have otherwise? And perhaps we are, but... They don't actually provide the unimputed analysis to see whether this assumption is correct. Mm. Were they able to, like, had they done this without imputation and just focused on the data knowns, would the results have been all that different? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good point. I, I, I take your point. So we don't get to see how much it changes. On the other hand, if we, if we, a, if we believe that the uh, unimputed data isn't really useful, what good does it to provide that. And the other thing is, if the imputed and unimputed versions tell us the same thing, that doesn't necessarily tell us that the imputation doesn't work. It could tell us, it could also imply that the missing and the not missing are just very similar and you don't know which. Yeah. So I take your point, but I don't know if it's, you know, if it's necessarily going to provide this is a fantastic discussion for this show because it is such an interesting uh, conundrum in epidemiology and and you know every every paper analysis that I've ever been involved in that I can recall where imputation came up immediately this debate emerged and then people start you know evoking that aren't we just MSUing you know is is this for real are we just you know is this like t- taking you know epidemiologic modeling to a ridiculous extreme it raises a lot of of concern and consternation even though i think you know not that i'm i'm you know, a methodological epidemiologist like you are. So I feel like on the mathy side, I have less to offer here. But but I, I, I take your general point that, that the point of imputation is, is to try to make the best use of what you have. And, and, and so there's some value there. Yeah, I think, the, so the point I think I would make is, unless you're going to say, we can't use this data, choosing to ignore it and just throw out the data that we don't have is making a big assumption. So the question is now, Hmm. Am I more confident in the assumption of throwing out data and ignoring it completely or using imputation? And there is where I think, you know, you have a, a better case to make to say we're better off doing it than not doing it. Hmm. But but I think it, it comes with all kinds of kinds of limitations. So, you know, flashing red light. Yeah. Comes know. with limitations. Yeah. Other other Concerns you want to raise, Don? Points? Or- yeah, the other concern I have is, and the, and the authors allude to this, is that there's a lot there's a lot of variability in terms of the metabolizing of THC, mm-hmm. and that there can be THC in the system for a prolonged period of time, well past the point at which you would be, have any kind of an impairment. And the other thing that they don't mention is habituation. That you, can, if you're a real stoner, 
and you've been a stoner for a long time, you can habituate to very high levels of THC, which in a normal person and a non-habituated person would be grossly impairing. But in that particular person, wouldn't necessarily be impairing because they're habituated to it. So I think that it's, it's, it's really hard to make some of these conclusions based on a kind of arbitrary set of levels for THC values and ascribe that as a causative factor in these fat- fatal crashes. So mm-hmm. I think those are also some important important faults, not faults, limitations. It's interesting you say that because the one of the parts of their of their results that you know didn't make much sense really was the medium range THC level. So the, you know, our listeners can't see the figures, but there's a, a series of figures that look at the pre and post legalization mm-hmm. proportion of individuals who had THC on board. And, you know, one of them is just like any THC, but then they break it down in, into the one to five, five mm-hmm. to 10 and greater than 10 ranges. And there's a clear step function for the overall effect as well as for the one to five effect and for the greater than 10 effect, you know, so you, you know, you hit that number and then suddenly, you know, with legalization, all these things go up substantially, except for the five to 10 range, which for some reason has this sort of gradual slope upwards rather than a step function. Mm. And, and I, I, I don't know how to explain that, but it's, it's so strikingly mm-hmm. different from the other two. Mm. And it, it like makes me wonder, is there, is there something implied about medium concentration THC here? And, and maybe habituation could be part of that. I don't know. Yeah. You know, it, it, this, it, it just stands out as odd. Yeah. And, I, and I couldn't figure out why it might be, you know, how do you explain for that break of the trend? I think, I think this was also, I think the authors claim, I, I believe, if I'm remembering this right, that this was what, this is one of the only, if not the only study that actually looked at contemporaneous blood values and crash data. That's Whereas right. Whereas all of the other studies sort of inferred that, and we're looking at time series like you had described, Chris. And, and and in that regard, I think it's a step forward. In that regard, I think that this is unique. And, you know, despite these limitations, I think it probably does add something, but we need better data nonetheless. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, Chris, you, you, so, I mean, we've sort of got into some of the things that we're concerned about, but you said when we were talking before that despite these limitations, you... You generally kind of believe this. Yeah, I, I do. But it, it, it comes back to our, you know, our Bayesian priors. And I, I'm going to say, am I, am I surprised to see that the proportion of people with THC on board at the time of a fatal crash went up after legalization? No. 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 And I bet that would be true I, at post-prohibition as well. Sure. You know, I mean, come on. Yeah. I, it, to me, I, I take a little bit more of a, a little bit more skeptical. I just don't understand what the design is and therefore what the question is. So I'm, I'm less convinced this is solid evidence just because I don't, again, I don't know what question we're asking. I mean, in addition to the issue of, you know, the, the number of fatalities can be changing over this time and therefore the proportional distribution doesn't really tell me. This is also adjusted for things like age, sex, things like that. Now, you can see adjusting for those things if you want to ask a question that says something about for people of the same age and sex, does uh, having THC in your blood compared to not having THC in your blood make it more likely that you're going to be in a fatal crash? So that would make sense. But that's not what they're doing here. Right. And so if the question is a policy question, does legalizing marijuana lead to more fatal crashes, then we don't care whether the age distribution is changing. So if, if we change the policy, more 
young kids, say, start using THC and getting into crashes, but more people in their middle age stop using alcohol and switch to THC and they stop getting in crashes. I don't mean to imply we don't care. We do care. Of course, we care very much. But I mean, from the standpoint of evaluating the policy, if the overall change afterwards is that fatalities go down, even though there's more fatalities associated with THC, we'd want to know that. We wouldn't want to say, if things had stayed the exact same in terms of the age distribution, we wouldn't adjust for that. So I, I just... Sort of analogous to vaping. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like things, you know, we can, we can, you know, if vaping stops people from smoking, it, it's possible there's a, there's a, a net benefit. good. Yeah. I, I don't mean to in any way imply that we wouldn't want to stop accident, fatal accidents or accidents at all related to THC. I'm just saying if you're evaluating the overall impact of the policy, you wouldn't want to fix everything. So that's kind of where I, I came away from, mm-hmm. from this one. Mm-hmm. But it does answer, it does answer one sort of relevant question, which is like, you know, at least at the base case, a lot of people go to bars and that's where they get drunk and then drive home and have car crashes. Mm-hmm. And so you could say that alcohol is is a particular problem outside of the home. And that, you know, maybe I'm just, I'm being totally hypothetical here because I don't know if this is true, but, you know, I could imagine that maybe more marijuana smokers smoke at home and are then not getting in their cars, mm-hmm. right? Possible. Because, you know, it's possible. I don't know. But but now the answer is is clear that no, in fact, a lot of those guys are getting in their cars. Twice as many are getting in their cars as before. Uh, no, see, I, I don't think you can conclude that from this data. Because again, if, if, if the overall number of car crashes or fatal, fatal car crashes were going down at this time, I'm not saying it was, but if it were, but the, even as the proportion of fatalities that identified THC in the blood went up, that wouldn't imply that, that marijuana is leading to more fatalities. It just means that it's potentially replacing some of the fatalities that would have been attributed to something else. And overall, it's getting rid of some. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I'm, not, I'm not in any way suggesting that's happening. It's not. Really, what we want is, the, is, is to see an analysis that puts these two pieces together. Exactly. And we have the whole story here. Exactly. You know, did, did car crashes go up? And can we use marijuana use as a mechanism to explain it? Yep. But we only get half the story. Exactly. All right. We're going we're gonna to move on because we went a bit long on that one. So I'll keep the second pit short. And this second segment came from a JAMA article written by... Nuti and uh, Armstrong okay. from, from MGH. The, oh, from Mass General Hospital here in Boston. And it was entitled Lay Epidemiology and Vaccine Acceptance. Now, when I thought of lay epidemiology, I was interpreting that to mean using epidemiologic findings and communicating them to a lay audience. But actually what they're referring to in when they talk about lay epidemiology is essentially the quote unquote epidemiology that the lay person is doing to try and make decisions for their own personnel. So for example, people are hearing stories in the news, going back to the example I gave in the in the previous segment about outbreaks of of COVID in populations that are highly vaccinated. Yeah. And are then trying to use that information to make judgments for themselves about whether or not the vaccines are working, which is a, as we know from being epidemiologists, a hard thing to actually do with a complete data set, let alone what you have there, which is a partial data set. All you have is the cases. You don't have the underlying population. Right. So this I thought, actually thought was an interesting concept, thinking about you know how does the typical person do their you know sort of uh, 
epidemiology in their head to be able to generate information that is useful to them to make decisions. Now, they go on then to explain that, that in their opinion, therefore, you know, we as not lay epidemiologists need to provide good messaging and data to people. We need to engage with local leadership who understand you know, the decisions that people are making in order to inform lay epidemiologists better, lay epidemiologists meaning the average person. And then medical professionals need to move from a focus on distrust, which is we've spent a lot of time during the pandemic trying to end the, the distrust, to a focus on being trustworthy. To I don't know what that exactly means, but these are their sort of prescriptions. But I, I, I don't know that I'm as interested in that as much as I'm interested in, is this something that you have encountered? I think it's got a different name. What would you call it? Which is one step away from asking Uncle Milty. I mean, I, I don't know if I buy the premise that, that people are, are acting as like, you know, untrained epidemiologists making reasoned decisions. I, I think that gives the, I gives the whole process rather too much credit. Yeah, I disagree. It, there's a lot of, there's a lot of A-cell epidemiology going on out there, which I, I think, well, A-cell epidemiology. So epidemiologists are grumpy because they, they are confined to live in four boxes, but some epidemiologists are grumpier still because they only look at one box. Like, so, so let's four, say COVID vaccination, yes or no, and dead, yes or no. Yeah, so right. the two by two classic two by two table where we cross tabulate exposure and outcome and right. look to see if they're associated. Right. So a cell would be like just looking at one of those four cells and, and drawing grand conclusions from it, like Tucker Carlson when he said, "Did you know that thirty five hundred people or so died after getting the COVID vaccine?" So that is cell A. Yep. What about the other three? I mean, like we like ratios here. Right. Epidemiology is all about ratios. So there's no ratio. Mm -hmm. And I and I I got so mad when I saw that on on, like, uh, you know, come past my newsfeed. And then I went on CDC Wonder and I was curious how many people die in the United States a day. And it's like 8000 die every single day. And he was talking about 3500 who had died after getting vaccinated over a five month period. So it's like it's so, so obviously misleading. And much as like, you know, I, I, I don't care for Tucker Carlson. I have to say, I don't think the guy is that stupid. So he was just being willfully disingenuous in presenting mm-hmm. the statistic as somehow like a reason why COVID vaccines are, are, are a bad thing, you know? So I don't know. I, I, I guess I'm not buying because I like to think that, that there is some expertise involved in epidemiology. And the reason that we have training in epidemiology is because we have learned our errors are rife if we just go with a gut sense yeah. as to what we pick up from Uncle Milty or read on Facebook. Don, Don, you disagree. I disagree. All right. Me too. But go ahead. I think the thing that I took away from this article, which, I, which, which sort of solidified my thinking over the course of the last 18 months of this pandemic, is that we live in largely a post-scientific era. Mm. And yeah. that it, it, the, the, the vulnerability of the, the population in the United States and many other places to non-scientific thinking is profound. Mm-hmm. And in a, in a pandemic situation, as we're seeing this, this epidemic of the unvaccinated, that's the portion of the population that is, 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 ha, has thinking that is harmful to themselves and harmful to others. And we're not getting through to them. And we're not able to explain them into compliance in terms of understanding the epidemiology or understanding the vaccines and appreciating the science. So what we need to do is stop doing what we've been doing and do something different. And, and what I got from this article is that we need to, to, to rethink how to deliver information to these people and, 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 and look at 
their specific contexts, look at their communities, their thought leaders, and don't try to bludgeon them with facts. Try to convince them through consensus of the people around them. I thought it was the, the one fact that was included in this article was that the vaccine uptake in the Navajo population is 88%. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, bespeaks the fact that there's this probably, and I don't know, I'm speaking out of utter ignorance, but but po- probably or possibly these Navajo communities are very homogeneous and very close-knit and are very guided by the social norms around them. And if you can somehow affect kind of the, 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 the social ambiance of their thinking, not through epidemiology in four boxes or one box or, or whatever, you're going to get success rate, rates like that. And, and, and it, it's, like, it's like a complete transformation, in my mind, of how we practice public health. Mm-hmm. You know, we generate the evidence so that we know what is the truth, but we can't depend anymore in this day and age in the, 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 the factness of the facts to, to, to convince people. Mm-hmm. Whereas 30 years ago, we could, because there was a whole different attitude in the general population towards science. Yeah. And I think we have to accept the fact that maybe not for the majority of the population, but for a very important minority of the population, we have to accept the fact that linear thinking presentation of facts is not going to be effective. And we I, need a I different agree. way to get it done. I agree. I, 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 I was you know thinking about trying to cast about for a wacky and weird segment, and I, I found one that I, that I actually think is more relevant to this. So I'd just like to mention it rather than talking about it as a wacky and weird, which is this this, this cool experiment where they, you know if you go into a toy store where they sell these little robots that sit on a set of springy legs and they kind of vibrate mm-hmm. and they move around in kind of a random way. And so this researcher, this computer science researcher, had gotten like a couple thousand of these things and put them on a giant disco floor, which had three colored lights that would change in in sort of a grid-like way, in a random way. So the robots were either sitting on a red, green, or a white tile. And if they were sitting on a red tile, they would communicate to each other red, 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 and red was like preferable, and green was intermediate, and white was least important. And so the question was whether other robots would start flashing red because the red robots did this. But the question that she was really asking is like, what is the effect of networking these robots? Because you might assume that if all the robots could talk to all the other robots equally and inform them about what they've discovered, like are they sitting on red, green, or white, that that would be the most efficient model. But what she found was the opposite, that if you constrained the science of the networks to the robots could only communicate with the ones that are very close to them, i.e. creating sort of like a social group, that that led to a much more powerful dissemination of information through the network of robots than if you had them all connect with each other. And I think that's the kind of thing that we're seeing in Facebook now, is that we have like become this this sort of nation of tiny little networks, and we're responding to the data within our networks as being highly reliable, as opposed to seeing the metadata that is sent like some, when, you know, Anthony Fauci gets on TV and says on CNN, blah, 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 you know, that has very little impact as opposed to what Uncle Milty said on Facebook, even mm. though Uncle Milty has no expertise whatsoever. Mm. You know, so we're, we're, we've become islands of little robots, uh, I think. Yeah, I, I, to me, and, and I suppose we're veering a little bit off directly what the topic was, but I, that's fine. I, I would agree with both of you in the sense that I do think the main lesson that we have learned from this pandemic in terms of 
you know, how to get people to engage in in public health preventative behavior is is not what we thought it was. That that what we did during this pandemic was completely ineffective in the face of the armies of misinformation that were aligned against us and that many of us were pretty naive. Now, to be fair, there, there were lots of people who did know this stuff because they already worked on you know, scientific communication and knew what we were up against. But for most of us, I would say we were, we were not engaged and therefore we suddenly needed all of us to be getting into scientific communication and most of us did not know what we were doing mm-hmm. and thought providing good information is enough and it it it's is not. it is simply not and and i think we we absolutely have to learn from that and and you know figure out a better strategy for the next time we are in hopefully not this kind of situation but even you know something where you know lives are at stake we will be we, we, we certainly will be, but I hope not soon. Yeah. All right. Let's leave that one there, and we will move on to our, our last segment, which Chris insists on calling the wacky and the weird, even though it is the amazing and amusing. And I'm, I'm going to go first. I think it's, with two, a, it's two against one, Matt. Yeah, I know. I don't care. Uh, I'm going to go first because i got a really short one, but i got to ask you guys, what is the longest time that you ever have had between submission of an article and acceptance and publication of said article. Almost two years. Yeah, I'd say about two years. Okay. Yeah, I would. I think I've been roughly the same. So this is, and I, I can't, I can't remember where I got this from because I, I snipped it. It's an acknowledgement section from an article, so I don't know the specifics. But their acknowledgements reads: the author would like to thank eight anonymous reviewers and the editor of ASR who worked over four point five years and four <laughs> rounds of review on this paper. To arrive in its current state, point <laughs> five years. The um, peer review process, which has, been, which has become completely obsolete now with Medrex and and all of these preprints, which are now the ones that are really driving the scientific thinking. Certainly in a pandemic, absolutely. Yeah. Four point five years. Think about what you could do in That's four point five years. I, I can't imagine why why this author hung in there. I know for so long because you got the say, sunk costs. Like I guess that's right? it. The, like if I have to start over, it could be another two point five years. I don't know. Uh, I wonder All what right. the paper was about. Uh, yeah, I, I'll, I'll have to go and find out. So, Chris, do you have one or you don't have one? I do have one. All I, right. I'm going to talk about the Mellotron. 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 Mellow. Mellow. Right, I'm feeling Mello. more mellow. M-E-L-L-O-T-R-O-N. All right. So you know the Mellotron. I you do. Just, it's, it's an instrument. Yeah, It's I a keyboard do. instrument. It looks it looks like a little synthesizer. kind of sounds like a synthesizer. When you were talking about this earlier, I pretended I did not know, but I know you what know. a Mellotron is. Is that the keyboard you blow into? No, no. A Mellotron, it, it's, it looks well, like a little... That's harmonia, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I think that's no right. Uh. Yeah, good call. The Mellotron looks like, looks like a Hammond organ. It's a little, you know, cabinet organ with a keyboard and some knobs and stuff on it. I became interested in the Mellotron totally by accident because when I'd gone on, uh, I took a, a working holiday to St. John of the U.S. Virgin Islands in the spring. And while I was on there, I was, you know, I had hours to fill every day because I wasn't working that hard. Uh-huh. So I'm um, mostly snorkeling and hiking, you know, and drinking painkillers, as they're called there, having a really great time. Where is the Mellotron going to come in here? And uh, I also started like downloading Remember, a lot of music Chris. and okay. listening stuff. And, and one of the groups I downloaded was was the Moody Blues. Gordon which I, Lightfoot. Uh, no, that was, that was later. 
right. the Moody Blues. The Moody Blues. And um, and I, I I really liked their music, and I and I actually have since then become totally obsessed with the Moody Blues, and I listen to them constantly. And I and I think they're they're a really interesting band. And one of the things that's interesting about them is that they have this unusual sound. And the unusual sound is the Mellotron. Their unusual sound, if you had to describe it, was is kind of like like weird sounding strings that creates this sort of ethereal, you know, ghostly ambiance to their music. Mm-hmm. Maybe the best example of that is then their their 1960s hit song Knights of White Satin, mm-hmm. where it goes the doodle 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 doo. That's the Mellotron that does that little theme. Some try to tell me thoughts they cannot defend. Now, so I was like, what the heck is the Mellotron, right? Uh-huh. Isn't this just a synthesizer? And the answer is no. That The Mellotron was this really weird instrument that had a brief heyday back in the 1960s and 70s before synthesizers became the thing. And it was the, the Mellotron is essentially the world's first sampling instrument. So like when I say a sample is that you record, you know, Matt Fox saying multiple imputation, and then you play that over and over and you hear Matt going multiple imputation, multiple imputation, and multiple, you know, you sample it, right? And you play it over and over and you can actually make that into part of a song. I've listened to that. Right? You know, a lot of, a lot of hip hop artists do sampling all the time. So the Mellotron was the first sampling instrument, but it was all analog. And then the way it worked was that supposing you wanted to play a C on the keyboard of the Mellotron. So behind, if you take off the, the cabinet, you look inside, what you'll see is that every key is hooked up to a, a spool of recording tape. Mm-hmm. But it's not a it's not a loop. It's a it's a it's a, about a two foot or three foot stretch of recording tape that's a little bit wider, and it's wider because it functions like an eight track tape. And the way you would play a C is that you would go and find a violin player, and you'd say play a C, sort of constant tone and pitch, play it for twenty seconds, and I'm going to record you on that piece of tape. And so now you have C being played for 20 seconds, and eventually the violin is, actually, actually eventually the, the tape ends, and so mm-hmm. it has to stop. And then you do the same thing for C sharp and D and E, and all of a sudden you create the entire series of the that same violinist playing it. But of course the violinist can't play a constant C, mm-hmm. and they can't play it perfectly in tune, because otherwise you'd capture the sound of the tuner as well. So the, 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 the pitch of the Mellotron C is not quite a C, and it is not quite a C over time. And it's mechanical because every time you press the key, what it actually does is it, it drops like a, a tensioner down onto the, onto the piece of tape, which causes that tape to now spool across a recording head. Okay, uh-huh. um, but it's doing this by the pressure of your finger, and so if you press too hard, it'll slow the tape down, and so the the, the C will go flat as you press on the key. And if you go more than twenty seconds, it stops abruptly because that's all it it's can good. only go as far as it can go. And then, like you do the same thing, you've mapped out your entire you know set of notes with the violinist playing, trying to play each of these notes, and then you move the recording head one step to the right on this this piece of recording tape and you do the same thing with the flute and then do the same thing again with the cello or whatever you want to do so you couldn't record anything onto it and then play it back Mm -hmm. by pressing this this thing but it is such a wacky instrument that is so temperamental and you can't play it fast of course because each time you press it it has to engage the movement of the tape and so it's all kind of delayed and slow and fuzzy and uh, you know it is a 
it is an interesting instrument that was really a bridge towards synthesizers. Mm. And then, of course, once you could make any sound you want and play it for as long as you want digitally, you get rid of all of this. But if you go back and listen to the original like Moody Blues songs and listen to the to the Mellotron in particular, it becomes fascinating because it's such an odd sound. It doesn't really sound like a violin. It doesn't really sound like a flute. It sounds like something that kind of wanders in and out of pitch and gets a little bit louder and quieter over time, and it's just odd. And if you play the same note over and over, you're catching the tape at different points. And so you've caught him higher or lower on his pitch or on his volume scale. And it makes the sound of the Mellotron utterly unique. And and that, so I, I encourage you all to go and go back to the Moody Blows 1960s. Take a listen to the, some of their, their, their great, you know, Tuesday afternoon would be another good one. But uh, Knights of White Satin is, is a good place to really hear the Mellotron. And it's also interesting because in, in that song, they also have an orchestra. So you get to hear the actual orchestra playing as opposed to the Mellotron trying to sound like an orchestra. Mm. So, cool. I learned something. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> I did. <laughs> it's got nothing to do with epidemiology. That's it's just fine. cool. That's fine. That's fine. Don, what do you got? Uh, I'm going to pass. I didn't do my homework. I see. You have showed up to the class having mm-hmm. not done your homework. Well, I think we're going a little over on time anyway. I think that's fair. All right. Well, you have reached the end of our program. If you, I, any- if you need me, I can keep going about the Mellotron. You want him to keep going? No. So if you've got any feedback on this or any other episode or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at at PopHealthyX or you can tweet me at at ProfMattFox or Don at at DeepThea1 or Chris at ID.Gill or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthyx.org. We want to thank Leslie Talali, an assistant dean of lifelong learning at the BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast and Nick Guler for sound and editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it and we hope you will download our next episode. Thank you.